0: we would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is exciting. We're back. We're so excited to be back. And we're technically not back because we're stuck at home because Sydney is still in lockdown.
1: Yes, I'm looking at a tiny screen where I've got uh, you and Megan, our sound editor, who's giving
0: me the look. Keep it going. (laughs) (laughs) We've upgraded our home tech And we're doing remote podcasting for a while, but it is still the future this week. But in the meantime, and hence the longer break, we've been working on some new exciting stuff.
1: On some new amazing stuff. The Unlearned Project, our new series about changing common sense, which is also now live. And if you haven't listened yet, the first episode is now out. We set out to unlearn old wisdoms and discover new ones. And our first episode is about computers.
0: Because computers are important to the entire podcast series. The world around us is changing and in large part this has to do with digital technology. Computing is now everywhere, but it didn't used to be. So in this first episode, we go on a bit of a history nerd out and show how we've previously unlearned what a computer is and what it is for and how we have to do it now all over again. So we go from human computers to
1: algorithms and look at how we're no longer just using them, but how they govern our lives. And we talk to a human computer still working at NASA, a Nobel Prize winner, a historian, a trust expert. We really think you'll love this episode. And in upcoming episodes, we'll cover all manner of things that you thought you knew, uh, but that are no longer true. Things like automation will make your work
0: easier. Which it doesn't. It makes your work harder. And that's the point. AI is coming to a workplace near you to make your life harder. Music is no
1: longer just something to listen to. Large companies can innovate and data is not the new oil. Absolutely. So subscribe to our new podcast, The Unlearn Project.
0: Go to Spotify or
1: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't miss it. It's got our faces on the banner. So that's what we've been up to, but we're here to start season 10 of The Future this week. So before we get to our main story, some of the stuff that's been happening while we've been out working on this exciting project and doing Corona Business Insights for quite a few weeks in lockdown.
0: I can't believe we're doing three podcast series now, but they all have their place. And a lot has happened in the future while we were away. And so let's have a look what's going on.
1: I think we need to start with... um, ABBA. avatars.
0: The ABBAtars are coming.
1: In case you've missed it, uh, ABBA has come back after a 40-year break. Uh, they're out with a new album, but it gets better.
0: And if you haven't heard it, ABBA really sounds like ABBA. Two new songs continuing with the great sound that the world has loved about ABBA.
1: And with the same look, they'll be doing virtual concerts featuring digital humans, digital avatars, ABBAtars that will look like they used to look in 1979.
0: But you have to travel to London. Next May, a big concert spectacle will launch and you get to enjoy ABBA like they used to be. So a gigantic digital human virtual production that will air projections live on stage and it will look like ABBA of old are really on stage, whereas the actual performers might sit in the audience with you having a look. So how is that made possible?
1: Well, they dress them up in leotards with dots and other sorts of things and perform on stage for five weeks on end with 160 cameras capturing all of it.
0: And they will be synthesized into a 90-minute performance that will be shown live on stage with projections. For people who are not in lockdown. (laughs) Absolutely. While they won't be on stage physically, the audience will be in the room physically. And shame this is a podcast because you should look up the link in the show notes and see, first of all, how real the virtual performers look like, virtual ABBA, and what the actual people look like in their motion capture jumpsuits.
1: But digital humans is something we've spoken about at length on The Future This Week in our previous nine seasons. So we'll also add a lot of links in the show notes to previous episodes where we discuss how the various types of digital humans are made, what they're good for, and how they've started to change many industries way beyond just entertainment. But other things have happened while we were away, not just ABBA. Shame the OnlyFans saga has ended before we started Season 10.
0: Yeah, so we would have loved to give you the naked truth about OnlyFans, but that story has already concluded, so that'll be the only reason we're not going to do this this week.
1: And it would have been about the uh, naked power of financial institutions to regulate access to the internet. But moving on... Other things have happened. As always, Gartner has released its new hype cycle. And because we started the season late, we have missed out on Gartner's new all hype, no cycle.
0: (laughs) Yeah, shame this is a podcast again, because you should have a look at what this hype cycle looks like this year. Just as a reminder, so the hype cycle visualizes the visibility and expectations around new and emerging technologies. And it's got this curve that cycles through five phases. Uh, It's got this steep upward incline, the innovation trigger. It's got the peak of inflated expectations. And then it goes straight down into the trough of disillusionment, climbs back up the slope of enlightenment and ends up on the plateau of productivity. So again, aptly named. If you are doing bullshit, bingo on the other end, you might have a winner right now. But this hype cycle this year is indeed... All hype, no cycle.
1: Yes, without further cycle, here's the new hype, it seems, because we've got many things on the innovation trigger upward slope. We've got a few things on the peak of inflated expectations. Nothing else, as you've mentioned, after that.
0: No, completely blank the rest of the curve. That has not been the case in previous years, but it has gotten more sparse over the past decade. But it seems right now... Everything is just hype. Nothing is progressing to productivity.
1: And all the usual suspects, things that have been on the hype cycle for quite a while and were moving along or being stagnant, AR via electric vehicles in various different stages. It's all
0: disappeared. All
1: disappeared. NFTs have made an appearance at the very height of the hype cycle.
0: And it's anyone's guess, but you might well predict that it will disappear again next year.
1: And digital humans are there on the um, innovation trigger. Glad to see avatars on the hype cycle.
0: Yeah, but with a 10-year time horizon, that is how long... Gartner predicts for digital humans to become productive that runs a bit counter to the fact that in May avatars will be live on stage so what we're saying here in a long-winded explanation is that this hype cycle this year seems to make even less sense than in previous years given that many new buzzwords make an appearance but often never really last longer than this very year when they first appear.
1: So maybe more of a hype list this year, but for more in-depth looks at the hype cycle, again, we'll put all the links in the show notes. Many of the analysis that we've done over the last few seasons still hold those general discussions about how this is made and how it can still be useful for businesses to think about what makes it onto the cycle. We'll put all the links in the show notes.
0: So again, less of a prediction, this hype cycle, and more of raising awareness for What are the new buzzwords? What are the new topics for the year that people should look out for? And a lot has to do, again, with machine learning, with AI, with data, with new kinds of network computing. So no real surprises there.
1: And speaking of AI, hundreds of... AI tools have been discussed and created and used during COVID. Another one of those interesting stories we've missed out on during the break. This one from the MIT Tech Review. Hundreds of AI tools have been built to catch COVID and none of them helped.
0: So this is a meta study in which the authors analyzed 415 tools and algorithms that were built to basically catch COVID to diagnose COVID in MRI images taken off patients' lungs. And they found that there was all kinds of different problems with these algorithms and none of them they found were actually truly fit for purpose, fit for use in a medical context. So that's a devastating result.
1: And it's a reminder of the challenges around AI with the data that is being used. And obviously, once you have poor data, whether that's around patients or around medical scans or uh, you know any kind of labeling and data collection that you're doing in the midst of a global pandemic, clearly is going to affect the quality of any tools built on top of it. And in this case,
0: it's a fascinating case study of how certain aspects in the data can be picked up by the algorithms that uh, for any human would have nothing to do with the actual diagnosis. For example, some patients were photographed lying down, the more sicker patients, that is, and other patients uh, sitting up. And so the algorithms would pick up on the positioning of the patients rather than the actual COVID traces in the lung images.
1: Even font sizes, so you had hospitals that were in areas that had bigger outbreaks. The algorithm learned to distinguish between the font that was used to label those images versus the font used to label images from areas with fewer infections. So all sorts of problems still early times for some of these technologies and limited use during a crisis. And again, we'll put a link in the show notes. We've spoken during the first wave of the pandemic about limitations of some of these AI tools during a pandemic, not only in healthcare, but also we discussed Amazon and other algorithms.
0: So again, a timely case study about how important the quality of the data is that goes into these deep learning algorithms and how any undetected mistakes can have large unintended consequences. What else did we miss?
1: We should really at some point revive our Robot of the Week segment. We had that during our first few seasons. Uh, Every week we had a Robot of the Week.
0: Oh, you must be talking about the latest incarnation of the weed killing robot. We've had different versions of this kind of robot before.
1: Yes, farming robots used to be one of our favourites. There's a new kid on the block, a farming robot from Carbon Robotics that can kill 100,000 weeds in an hour while keeping the farm organic by using lasers.
0: Lasers. Pew, 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 pew. So we've had the weed puncher, we had the precision sprayer, but we're now going all space wars on the clovers, mass killing hundred thousands of them with precision laser beams.
1: So a good use of AI because you've got 12 high-res cameras pointed at the ground and using machine learning to identify the plants. And when it detects a weed, it flashes a light, killing it. I do think I prefer the punching one, but this is definitely a contender for robot of the week.
0: Star Wars is coming to a field near you.
1: And speaking of reviving old segments, we used to have one a few seasons ago There was uh, It's a Musk. Ooh,
0: ooh, It's a Musk.
1: Surely Elon Musk saying that Tesla is working on humanoid robots must make the It's a Musk.
0: Well, I heard someone say. So Elon Musk is uh, creating some friends for himself.
1: Yes, he is working on a prototype supposedly coming and uh, the quote is sometime next year.
0: Raises the question, why a humanoid robot? Answer, because we can. No, probably (laughs) to assist with the autopilot driver on the Teslas. So if you pay a little extra, your Tesla comes with an autopilot and a robot.
1: Yeah, well, according to Musk, it's intended to be friendly, it will be designed at a mechanical level so you can run away from it and most likely overpower
0: it as well. Should it develop the kind of intelligence and intentions to, you know, turn against you? That's very reassuring to know.
1: Given that it's designed to handle tasks that are unsafe, repetitive or boring, we started creating a list, but we encourage you to think of your own. So that would be me
0: trying to surf. but among all the fun we're having with the avatars and Elon Musk and his new friends um there were some serious stories as well
1: and probably none more so than the latest IPCC report so the intergovernmental panel on climate changes report that made again the case that major climate changes are inevitable and irreversible. It's been the panel's starkest warning yet that temperatures are likely to rise by more than 1.5 degrees, bringing widespread extreme weather. We've done quite a few articles on Sydney Business Insights by many of our colleagues, people like Professor Chris Wright. We'll be adding all the links in the show notes, but obviously serious discussions to be had about how only rapid and drastic reductions in greenhouse
0: gases in this decade can prevent such climate breakdown. And that comes at the same time as an article reports that about one-third of the US population has been subjected to extreme weather events in the past year alone. So an unprecedented exposure to the effects of climate change is already happening.
1: And of course, bushfires we've had in Australia, floods we've had in Germany, fires in Greece... We've had weekly reminders on the news about just how the climate is changing in really unprecedented ways.
0: Which has now started discussions in Australia, for example, around which houses in which areas will in the future still receive mortgages or indeed insurance as the exposure to rising sea levels and shore erosion, for example, increasingly impacts populated areas along the east coast of Australia.
1: So all up. Lots of news while we've been away. But we do want to talk in a bit more detail about one
0: story. Our favorite story. It
1: had to be this one. Breakup Big Chicken.
0: Breakup Big Chicken in the New York Times. So we couldn't go past this one.
1: We couldn't go past this one for two reasons. You all know our interest in Breakup Big Tech. And you also know one of our favorite ever episodes was The Chicken of Tomorrow. And this is a story that brings them together. We'll discuss what does big tech have to do with your chicken.
0: From the University of Sydney Business School, this is Sydney Business Insights, an initiative that explores the future of business. And you're listening to The Future This Week, where Sandra Peter and Kai Reema sit down every week to rethink and unlearn trends in technology and business. They discuss the news of the week, question the obvious, and explore the weird and the wonderful.
1: So what does Big Tech have to do with your chicken? Well,
0: you're not talking about my chickens right in the backyard. You're talking about chicken. All our chicken. In general. Fried chicken. All our chickens. All chicken. All chickens, yes.
1: So this story in the New York Times brings together Big Tech and Big Chicken because they share the same problem Market power, concentration, monopoly, duopoly, very few players in what is a very big market. So bear with us. We'll go from big tech to big chicken. And it all starts with the fact that we're in the middle of a rather radical shift in the conversation, in our understanding of antitrust, of monopolies and of market concentration. And this is one of those twice a century kind of changes in conversation.
0: And what we're really doing right now collectively and especially regulators in the US is not inventing a new understanding of antitrust and monopolies, but rather going back to the source of an understanding of competition monopolies and antitrust that was already prevalent in the early 1900s.
1: So, Antitrust legislation has been around, as you've said, late 1800s, beginning of the 1900s with government realizing that a number of companies are having a rather unhealthy level of power in the economy. And that can translate into um, distortions in the way trade happens and higher prices for consumers can be one such effect.
0: So the story of antitrust regulation really starts during the second industrial revolution, and it has to do with railroads.
1: And it really came as a response to the fact that at that time, there were hundreds and hundreds of different short-line railroads, which were increasingly being bought up by a very small number of companies and being consolidated into bigger and bigger systems controlled by very few companies. And remember, Second Industrial Revolution is about new types of of manufacturing and large scale corporations and new modes of transport. So these new networks of transport and of communication are essential for a healthy economy, yet it's this small number of large organizations that are controlling them people start arguing that in order for the economy to remain healthy and to be successful, there need to be opportunities for individuals to build their own businesses, to access these networks at prices that still make sense for their business. So at this point, the US decides that they do not want to allow any organization to have the type of political and economic power that England used to have over the US. So the antitrust Act comes in to make sure that these companies do not have the power to distort free
0: trade. And so at the time, antitrust legislation is reasonably broad and it affords a number of protections for the economy to ensure healthy competition. And it takes care of the entrepreneurial spirit. It allows for an environment in which new Businesses can come in and flourish. But over time, after the Second World War, with consumer culture, the understanding of antitrust narrowed with a strong focus now on the consumer and consumer welfare to the extent that it became almost exclusively focused on price. So, whenever a concentration happened that impacted on consumer welfare through higher prices, regulators would intervene. But if that wasn't the case, then there would be more hands-off. So the consumer prices would be the main governing factor of antitrust regulation.
1: And for pretty much the past 40 years, this idea of consumer welfare translated into cheap prices for consumers really dominates the antitrust conversation. So what happened with big tech and with People like Lena Khan, and we've discussed Lena Khan before. Lena Khan, who is now the new chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission in the US, but started out as a researcher with an article she wrote back in twenty seventeen in the Yale Law Review, where she was arguing that now with the advent of the fourth industrial revolution, we must rethink what we understand by anti-competitive behavior and we must rethink antitrust legislation. And we'll add a link in the show notes back in the day, a rather lengthy and in-depth academic article that really reset that agenda and that we covered when it came out on The Future This Week and we've been
0: keeping an eye on ever since. Salina Khan, in this now seminal research piece, argued that we have to go back to the original understanding of antitrust because the power of big tech does not show in lack of consumer welfare. Many of the services are free, free search with Google, free social networking with Facebook. Amazon famously keeps prices low for consumers, but their power actually shows in other parts of the economy.
1: So what Lena shows is that Companies like Google and Facebook, Amazon, Apple have very different types of businesses to what we're used to, railway companies, oil companies, energy companies, that raise these very different types of questions with regard to antitrust and manifest in in other ways, like the damage that they instill on the supplier side rather than on the consumer side.
0: So that is Amazon competing with their suppliers in the Amazon marketplace with their own products being accused of uh, using their access to data to copycat or privilege their own products in search results on the platform, or Apple, who is accused of stifling access to its app store or taking an undue cut from suppliers for listing their products in the app store.
1: So undue power that translates in effects on workers, on suppliers, on competitors, on consumer choice or even democracy or political system as a whole. Hence, we need a different understanding of antitrust and very different antitrust solutions as well. And that brings us
0: back to chicken, big chicken.
1: Big chicken, because most chicken that Americans eat, for instance, is processed by a handful of big companies. And for the last few decades, these companies have not only been able to control the price of chicken,
0: but also have been able to do things like keep wages low, get away with substandard work conditions. And so it's this shift in thinking about antitrust away from a narrow focus on price to a broader appreciation of other stakeholder issues that has now brought to the attention of the antitrust regulators these chicken companies. And one of the leading issues here is indeed the worker conditions and a renewed campaign to do something about that because workers in this industry do not have choice of other employers because of the concentration.
1: And indeed, COVID-19 has also showcased a lot of the conditions and the wages of people who work in meat processing plants not just in the U.S. But it's a number of these industries, right? It's not just big chicken. It's a number of these older and really not very sexy industries that this conversation has shed a light on. Because, And the article in the New York Times points out that similar concentrations happen in industries we would never even think about, like, for instance, coffin producers or airlines or cell phone providers, eyewear manufacturers, and so on.
0: Yeah, but it is here that the keen listener might interrupt and say, but isn't the meat industry about to be disrupted by, you know, meat alternatives by all these new companies coming in that produce fake meat or lab meat? We hear about impossible and beyond meat. Uh, Wouldn't that do away with the issue because there is new competition from these companies?
1: And that's the thinking that you hear most often that, you know, yes, yes, there might be these historical legacy effects, but surely new technologies and new ways of doing this and innovation and disruption in the industry will just break this open and everybody will be better off.
0: To which we say, behold, the chicken of tomorrow, because we have looked at the origin of how we ended up with this concentration in the chicken industry before.
1: And this is a fantastic story we tackled at length in one of our episodes, and we'll put the link in the show notes. But in summary, the whole chicken industry has to do with coming out of the Second World War and with the fact that during the Second World War, meat in general was rationed. And at that point, the only two staple meat sources were pork and beef. And chickens were not really common. They weren't actually producing any meat or they were not, producing a lot of meat, they were kept around only for eggs. And at that point, in terms of business, eggs seemed like a really good investment strategy because they were the alternative to the rationed meat. As the war ended and the restrictions ended on beef and pork, one businessman saw a really big competition heading their way in the protein space, because if you could have beef or pork, you did not want the eggs. So... What could be done to get meat out of chickens? So long story short, uh, by 1945, a most extraordinary undertaking takes place called the Chicken of Tomorrow. This
0: is a competition.
1: The U.S. Department of Agriculture, together with about 55 other national organizations, scientists, bureaucrats, government agencies and chicken producers, land-grant colleges, hundreds of farmers and of volunteers, compete to develop this fantastical new chicken that would provide a alternative protein source. The US
0: ended up with two birds that would feed the nation.
1: Yes, as the Saturday Evening Post put it, one bird chunky enough for the whole family, a
0: chicken with breast meat so thick you could carve it into steaks. And the rest is a story of patents and licensing and rights to those birds, which from the onset, set the industry on a path of concentration to the extent that the US ended up with only a handful of large chicken manufacturers. And this is where the parallel to today becomes obvious.
1: Because the meat industry really became about intellectual property. So the open source birds before the... Second World War became two birds where you had to every time go back to one of these companies if you wanted to grow chicken with meat that would be competitive in the market. So chicken meat was a trade secret. And the same thing is happening today with a handful of organizations creating the same kind of environment, patented products, trade secrets, intellectual property around alternatives to meat enter companies like Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat. And incidentally, the big chicken companies were one of the early investors in the alternative meat companies.
0: And so developing these new technologies to create plant-based or lab-based meat products takes a lot of investment, venture capital, but also a lot of technological know-how and will result again in patents and licensing arrangements. And the question is now, how can this industry be developed without ending up with just a handful or even just two companies, Impossible and beyond, who might grow very quickly, very fast on the back of licensing agreements with large fast food chains, for example.
1: And if we're looking at chicken, Impossible Foods' meatless chicken nuggets made their debut actually last week in the U.S., And that chicken substitute will be available in supermarkets by September. Beyond Meat launched its own chicken tenders sometime back in July. So we are seeing those moves now. But the answer to all of this is
0: big tech. And big tech provides, first of all, a cautionary tale for what happens when companies grow very, very large, very quickly on the back of their access to and control of particular technologies. So while it is really difficult to now break up or regulate these tech behemoths, the thinking here is to prevent this from happening in other industries before these companies grow so big.
1: But also by allowing us a much more nuanced understanding of what market power is beyond just cheap prices for the consumer. So thinking about suppliers, thinking about workers, thinking about other competitors, thinking about customer choice. All are now part of the conversation because breakup big tech
0: has allowed us to rethink how we would, for instance, break up big chicken. And so the learning here is to develop new tech industries with antitrust in mind from the outset rather than having to regulate after the fact. But that's
1: all we have time for in this first episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the Unlearned Project wherever you get your podcasts. And we're glad to be back. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.
0: This was The Future This Week, an initiative of the University of Sydney Business School. Sandra Peter is the Director of Sydney Business Insights and Kai Rima is Professor of Information Technology and Organisation. Connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Flipboard and subscribe, like or leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any weird and wonderful topics for us to discuss, send them to sbi at sydney.edu.au You just want to read out some of the names, do you?
1: Yes, the journal had about six pages of small type classified ads featuring chicken names with wonderful
0: things such as single comb and conas, silver wyand... Wyandots. We have a silver-laced wyandot at home. We also got an Australorp and a Plymouth rock, and they're beautiful chickens.
1: But do you have brown leghorns? Do you have black langshans? Do you have light brahmas? Do you have Sicilian buttercups or golden campines? Do you have silver-grade dorkins or silver-spangled hamburgs, molted or mahogany orloffs?